This is a HeadGum Original. In 1977, NASA sent two solid gold records into space so that aliens might find them and understand life on Earth. I send greetings on behalf of the people of our planet and friendly wishes to all who may encounter this voyager. Now, we're making new records with our friends. We step out of our solar system into the universe seeking only peace and friendship. We know full well that our planet and all its inhabitants are but a small part of this immense universe that surrounds us. Hello from the children of planet Earth. Well, Shelby, Shelby, how are you? Oh, good. Caleb, how are you? You have your Instagram back. I got my Instagram back. I got locked out momentarily. They required me to get a notarized letter to get back into it. Like it's the 1700s. I have never been to a notary in my entire <laughs> life, um, but I did that. I had to get a notarized letter. For so long, I thought it was Noda Republic, not notary public. Do you know what I'm saying? Noda Republic. Yeah. Like, like the Republic of Noda. Yes. Yes. Exactly. For example. But it's actually a notary space public. Well, Shelby, we live and we learn. That's all part of the beautiful journey of life. Don't we you think? Live and we learn. What if that's how I talked? What if that's how I, what if that's how I was all the time? You know people like that? Like people that are people that are like that are always saying something kind of inspiring. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Like people that yeah. are kinda of like, Well, that's uh, you know, life goes that way and we have Sometimes the choice. Sometimes the to, cookie crumbles and we can pick up the cookie with a napkin or we could vacuum it up with a vacuum. We rise to the occasion or we don't, <laughs> and that's just the the way that it goes. And it's like what are you it's Tuesday. What are you talking about? Um, Wait, Caleb, should we talk about our guest? Yeah, I'm really excited to bring our guest in. I'm really excited to bring our guest in. This is pretty crazy. I will say this is the biggest episode we've done so far of the pod. This is huge for us. Um, Our guest today worked on the original Golden Records. He's an American-based artist and science journalist. He was Carl Sagan's principal artistic collaborator from 1972 through 1976. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, please welcome John John Lomberg. John, how's it going? It's going great. We're so excited to have you. Uh, You're in Hawaii. I'm in Kona on the big island. And you live there. I've lived here for almost 35 years. Exactly. That's the dream. (laughs) What inspired that move? Yeah. How did you you end up in Hawaii? Have you ever been here? No. Is that all it takes? I've been there once. And I think it is all it takes. It takes about an hour and you go, why aren't, why am I living somewhere else? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can dress it up with a lot of fancy reasons. There's a lot of astronomy here and I, I love the oceans and, but it's just such a great place that, uh, it seemed the logical thing to do. Uh, and you live there with your uh, wife, is it? My wife and, uh, well, my two kids are grown now, but they were both born and grew up. And what are you doing these days? Just hanging out at the beach, looking at the stars? What are, you, what are you up to in Hawaii? I hang out at the beach as much as I can and look at the stars as often as the sky is clear. The, the stars from Hawaii are pretty fantastic. But uh, I'm kind of at the uh, stage of my life where a lot of people come to me to ask advice on, uh, uh, on their love life or their career choices or projects that I've worked on. Uh, Become Yoda, have I? Uh, so, <laughs> I love that. What what advice are you get? Okay, I have a bad love life, John. What advice would you give me? My, I, I'm not, I'm not dating anybody, but I'd like to be. Do you have anything for me? I'd say find a good love life. Yeah. Okay. okay. There we go. Yeah, so everything's pretty simple with John. You go to Hawaii, yeah. you move, you get a good love life. It's pretty easy. Yeah. I love that. Um, well. We actually are so excited to have you for several reasons. The first part of what we want to talk to you about, eventually we want to talk to you about the original Golden Records and um, how that all kind of went and came about. But we're wondering, you sent us a bunch of stuff that you would have maybe um, added to it or would add now. Do you want to talk through some of that with us? Well, I mean, I think you have to back up and and say, what what is it that you're trying to do with, uh, with a Golden Record? You know, and uh, maybe this gets into the other part of the program, but it, it, it really depends on, on what you're trying to do. I mean, anybody can make a list of their 10 favorite pieces of music. Right. I mean, anybody in the world can do that, and they're all equally valid. I mean, nobody yeah. can say that's, that's not your 10 
favorite pieces of music. <laughs> so you might try to say, okay, well, how about with my with my gang of friends? What are our ten favorite pieces of music? Yeah, and then you kind of have to negotiate a little bit, yeah. or maybe you can say of my generations or some group that you feel especially attached to. What's our music? And then it all depends on how you define our. Or maybe you're writing a, a, an encyclopedia article for Wik Wikipedia and you want to sum up human music in 10 representative examples. Well, that's a very different kind of thing. And then weirdest of all is you want to make a playlist for extraterrestrials who've never heard music and don't know anything about us or how we're making it. And that's maybe the weirdest kind of playlist of all. <laughs> and when I don't I don't know, I haven't listened, I confess, to uh, to your other podcast. So I don't know what kind of choices people make, but I'm guessing people tend to take it very simply and say, what do I like best? If I had to, you know, there used to be a CBC program called Desert Island Discs. Mm. And that was the premise of the of the program. You're on a desert island and you can take 10 records with you. This was back in the LP days. What 10 records are you content to listen to for the rest of your life? And people would make, you know, would make their, their choices. So uh, is it the 10 pieces of music or, you know, some limited number of pieces of music that I'd like to listen to if they were the only ones that I could listen to? Or are these the ones I think the extraterrestrials would most like? Or are these the ones that if we're representing the planet and trying to represent the planet, sending 10 songs of any single genre, whether it's hip hop or country, wouldn't represent the planet. Right. So let me answer by asking you, what have you found people have tended to pick? Their favorite songs? I would say sometimes it's favorite songs, but a lot of the times what I've found is it's like more songs based on the feeling that they've, or like this song makes me feel X. So I want them to get that feeling or that vibe. Um, or sort of like some people have chosen like full music videos because of the, like the world that it paints with that music versus, yes. um, I think it is often also like maybe their favorite song, but a lot of the time it's more artist based. They'll say like, I really think I want Bjork to be on there. And then it's like, well, which, uh, if we're doing Bjork, let's put one song to represent Bjork. And then from there. So it's more. And also I, I feel like, uh, you know, John, we've been doing, um, just for the sake of having fun with it, we've been letting people do. People have put on feelings. Uh, we've 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 allowed people to put on like, oh, the the feeling yeah. of being at dinner with your friends and and everyone's laughing. We've allowed people yeah. to put on smells and recipes. People have put on f family recipes and people have put on devices. They're saying, you know, if I could put on the record, I would put on a a bidet Swiffer. or whatever, yeah. a Swiffer. Yeah, like w people have gotten uh, very silly with it, and people have also. Um, gotten into the conversation and, and been like, you know, I really want to put this piece of media or this book for the aliens. Cause I want them to understand yeah. these aspects about human life or whatever. So we've opened it up quite a bit, but I guess what you were saying is it before we get into your records, maybe it's actually more helpful to talk about. I mean, I feel like what you guys did with the Voyagers um, is obviously we think it's fascinating. Cool, but it's crazy. I mean, what were you guys thinking? What was the, <laughs> In the original, yeah. What, what were you, were you thinking? thinking? What, what were you doing? Thinking. <laughs> well, let, let me answer that by segueing from what you just said about the very fascinating uh, proposals of sending the feeling of being at family dinner mm. or the smell of a bonfire. Mm. In that, okay, if I'm the designer, how do I record that? Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. don't know how to record feelings or smells. Right. Smells are yeah. particularly fascinating because, in a way, they are the clearest thing because a smell is a molecule. Mm. And if you could give the aliens, you know, the molecule that's the smell of roses, that is in most literal, real sense, the smell of roses. You're really giving it to them. How they interpret it is up to them, but you, you're, you're definitely giving it to them. Giving a feeling is so much, uh, and maybe that's what art is for. And I think one of the reasons that music was chosen as the major content of the record was precisely because it's the only way we have to record feelings, art in general. Well, 
you guys on the original records had this added burden of actually having to make something and send it, you know? Yeah, we, we get to be really <laughs> theoretical. We're saying, yeah. you know, we have technology that wasn't around back then and we can send a feeling just for the sake of letting it happen. Yeah, we're pretending this is possible. But I think you guys had to, uh, to do something really difficult in, in trying to say like, God, here's here's the whole world and all of these experiences and we only have limited space. How do we... How do we choose these artifacts, these images, et cetera, to like really represent what we're trying to represent? I mean, what what were you guys trying to represent? Well, I think that what we were trying to represent was who made this artifact, the artifact being the spacecraft, because I sometimes describe the golden record as the hood ornament of the spacecraft. If Anybody remembers what hood ornaments are anymore? They were the little <laughs> chrome statuettes on the on the hoods of cars. You still see them on. You elegant, still see them on like a Mercedes or a Volvo or a Jag, you know. <laughs> yeah. But every car used to have them, and they're not functional. They don't need to be there. Everything else on the car is pretty much has some purpose. Just like on Voyager, everything else has some mechanical or scientific or engineering function. There's nothing there for decoration. There's nothing there that doesn't have to be, except the golden record. And uh, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's the hood ornament. And what it was trying to do is if you found the spacecraft, if we found a spacecraft from another civilization, we would want to know who made it. We'd be curious about, you know, the machine itself, and we'd, we'd, we'd maybe try to start it up, maybe try to learn what we could from it, examine all the materials. But that doesn't tell us about who made it, and that would be the most tantalizing question. So the record was made to answer that question, who made this spacecraft? And uh, initially, NASA just thought that Sagan and Drake would uh, recap what they had done on the Pioneer spacecraft, which was that uh, now iconic plaque showing the line drawings of the man and the woman, and the man is holding up his hand and greeting, and there's a map of the solar system. Everybody's seen that. Not everybody knows what it is, but it's one of those, you know, those, you know memes that, that is just, <laughs> just there. And at first NASA thought, we'll do another plaque, but Frank Drake, who was uh, Carl Sagan's... Uh, scientific colleague in all of these things uh, said for the same size and weight we could put a record and a record could record a lot more information than a plaque and a record in those days meant an LP this was all before digital this was this wasn't a CD this wasn't a DVD this wasn't a laser disc this was nothing digital this was an analog disc and one of the beauties of it is that unlike a music video or any kind of video, which needs a fairly complicated player to decode. Mm. I mean, if you're just given a DVD, you can't do much with it. But if you're given an LP, and this is a experiment we used to do in science class when I was a kid, you, you took an old LP and you put a pencil through the middle and you got a safety pin and you'd spin the record and you'd put the pin in it and you could hear the music. Hmm. That's all it took. Everything else is just to make it louder. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. You should that. try that with my records. Yeah. Well, not with the record <laughs> that you like, but or <laughs> if you put it on a on an LP on a turntable and don't turn it on, but put the stylus on the grooves and just spin the record with no power, you'll hear it. You'll hear it very tiny. That's so crazy. Records are crazy. That's what Edison discovered, and that's what's so beautiful about an analog recording. It's transparent. It doesn't take anything complicated to play it. Now, that's what made music or audio such a great choice and such a brilliant idea of Frank's, that for the same amount as a plaque, we could get all of this added content and there's a lot of audio material that you can send and that we did send. But Frank also figured out a way to in include pictures on the album. And my main role on the project was designing the story. It's not 120 separate unrelated pictures. It's a story. It's almost like a film storyboard. And it's the story of Earth and the story of humans. And that tells what we were and who we were. But the music, I think, was was put there to say really what it feels like to be human. So the pictures were sort of the 
the the the story of it, the fact of it, like this is the this is the fact of who humans are, and you would say the music was more of like how it feels now to exist as us. Well, they may not ask how does it feel if they don't have feelings. Right, uh, we don't know that, <laughs> so it's really a shot in the dark. Yeah, if it's an artificial intelligence, and some people argue that in the long run it'll be machines that populate the universe and travel between the stars, and we're most likely to be found by some advanced AI than by anything flesh and blood. And to them, the music may be completely incomprehensible because it's not for anything and there's no, there's no hidden, you don't decode music to get a message of something else. It's, just, it's an end in itself. Yeah. That may be incomprehensible. My hope and, and why I thought music was a good choice is that besides the emotional content of music, there's another aspect of music that's maybe more universal than human, and that's the patterns. Hmm. We love to search for patterns. We love to see beautiful patterns in nature, the patterns of the snowflake, the patterns that we find on the decorations of animals, on the wings of butterflies, you know, the, the, the mirrored patterns. We love a mirrored symmetry. We love, you know, kinds of, 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 of patterns in music as well. And there's some kinds of music where the beauty of it, you know, a really intricate guitar lead, you know, where he's climbing up the scale and then climbing back down the scale. And there's emotion in it, but there's also just the same kind of beauty in the pattern that you see in, in, in nature. And that's, that's a beauty that I find in a lot of music. And so I thought that even if they don't get our emotions of, uh, of jealousy and longing and triumph and like that, they may like the cool patterns that we make in music. So that's kind of a backup that if they don't get the, uh, you know, the feeling, at least there's something in that's a really beautiful design. John, do you, you talked for a second in there about, um, like, uh, I, I believe you said that uh, there are many people who think that, um, you know, okay, so some, something out in the universe discovers us and comes to Earth, and that it, a lot of people maybe think that it's most likely to be some sort of advanced AI. Do you, John, personally, do you have any conception of aliens or what you think? Like, do you think aliens are... Uh, flesh and blood do they look like us are they tall short like what do you think it's an ai situation how do you feel and john before you answer just know you're talking to a skeptic caleb doesn't think aliens exist <laughs> i am i yeah i'm pretty skeptical i'm pretty skeptical <laughs> i believe they do caleb is a skeptic i'm skeptical that we have any evidence that they've ever been to earth now or in the past and i don't believe that ufos are alien spacecraft i've seen too many of them myself that I've later found out what they are. Yeah. Uh, so in the popular conceptions of aliens are among us and we're in touch with them and they've been influencing human history and tinkering with our DNA. Area 59. I don't that. believe any of that. Okay. But if you look at what we know about how the earth got here and we now know that there are literally, you know, uncountable numbers of planets and all of those stars that we see, and everything about organic chemistry shows us that it's easy to make the foundations of life. Going from slime to people is a big step. It took four billion years here. Uh, so we don't know uh, how likely it is, but the odds are so, even if the odds are long, there are so many places where it might happen that it's bound to turn up. The question is, if it turns up a long time ago, far, far away, it might as well not be there. Mm. What we'd like is somebody close enough to contact in the same sliver of time that we are, because space is not only very big, it's very old. We've only been around as a civilization for a few millennia, and we may very well may destroy ourselves. So if civilizations only last for a few millennia here and there, two of them are never close enough to contact each other. So there might as well only be one life form in the universe. The, the concept of time yeah. being in the past and the present <laughs> breaks my brain in a way. I, I already know how much smarter you are than me. 
period. 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 Let's start there. Let's begin there. But, <laughs> but when you start talking about how t- we still don't know things that happened in the past because they haven't reached us yet, that's where I'm like, you're so my, my brain doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow the space for that. Well, let, let me let me answer your original question. I like to think of the aliens are flesh and blood, not like us. I don't think they'll look like us, but. I think a universe that's dominated by machines, from a human point of view, there's something sad and lost and missing in that universe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I like to think that somewhere out there, there are beings who started like us, as fallible as us, as stupid as us, and somehow surmounted that, overcame it, and found a way to live for a very, very long time. The problem is we our life spans are so brief. If we could live a lot longer, all the oh, space no. stuff would be a lot easier. But maybe that would raise problems of its own. So I like to think that there are a lot of people like me in the, in general, but particularly in this regard, <laughs> that when I think about the sheer size of the universe, mm-hmm. that you know we've talked about on this podcast several times before uh, that video where it shows you Earth. And then it goes to the next, the sun, the moon, the, it, it gets, you, you know, it, you go for so long that earth feels like it may as well not even exist. That kind of stuff stresses me the hell out. I mean, it, it makes just me looks so... like a, a bunch of dust particles and then they have an arrow that's to like the smallest piece and they're like, now that's earth. <laughs> and it's, and it's way bigger than you even does, does uh, you have, I mean, you've been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, does it stress you out? Do you get scared or sad about it? Or does it bring you peace? That's the debate we have. It brings me peace because I take quite the opposite view of it. Uh, When Carl Sagan was was told the same thing, it makes me feel so insignificant. His response was, well, then do something significant. Oh, my God. Damn. (laughs) Damn. That's drag me, drag me, drag me. (laughs) What that means to to me is that there's no end to the scale of big or small. You never get to the scale where you're big enough to be. Even the whole galaxy is nothing. Our galaxy of millions and millions of stars is just what, you know, you can say you're nothing because you're one of four billion people, but you don't feel that way. No. It doesn't matter if there are a million other people or a billion other people, you're still you and you're special and your life is special to you. You're not insignificant because you're one of a billion people. So why should the fact that we're one of a billion planets make it any worse? You're significant at your own scale. You know, and whether you're an ant, then you're significant at the ant scale. If you're a galaxy, you're significant at the galaxy scale. So stay in your lane. I'm Don't worry about the lane. other lanes. Stay in, your lane. stay in your lane, everybody. That's the takeaway. <laughs> I'm about to clip that part and play it before I go to bed every night. Stay in your lane. Yeah, stay in your scale. And in your scale, be as significant as you can be and make your life mean something for you and the people you love. And that's as, that's as significant as it gets in this universe. I love that so much. I, and I, I wonder, John, when you guys were working on the original records... Did you feel like while you were making it, like, oh, man, we are making something that I'm going to be talking about and other people will be talking about and, and, and getting newly interested in decades and decades from now? Did you feel the weight of it? Not at all. Uh, the, <laughs> you, you have to remember, there, there are two numbers that make people's jaws drop when I talk about the record. The first is that the thing is going to last for a thousand million years, thousands of millions of years. And something I did, a drawing I made, is going to last that long. And wow, that's an incredible number. But what gets an even bigger gasp is that we had to do this project to sum up the whole world that's going to last for all this time. And by the way, you have six weeks, no staff, and no budget. Mm. (laughs) We have wondered before what what the time (laughs) restraints were, how stressed people were. Six weeks from the time Carl called me and said, I've got this project I want to work, I want you to work with me on. Till the time we had to have the finished thing to show NASA, and then two more weeks to produce the actual object to go on the spacecraft, because we were running right up against the deadline of when they had to pack the thing up and put it on the rocket. Right. So there was no, they couldn't give us any more time, which in retrospect, I think worked in our favor because it meant that NASA had to take it or leave it, and they decided to take it. I think if they had more time to think about it, they would have said, ah, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. But at the time, the reason they did, and then to answer your your question, is that 
We didn't know that the spacecraft would even work. It could have blown up on the launch pad. We certainly didn't know that it was going to get out to the edge of the solar system and still function. We didn't know that the solar system would be so incredible. And we didn't know that Voyager would turn out to be one of the best things that NASA ever did. We didn't even think of it as the golden record and the fact, you know, that it had that cachet of being this golden disk in such a prominent spot, we didn't realize. And in the early days at the launch and at the early missions, nobody paid much attention to it. It was kind of an afterthought. It wasn't until later, it took a while for the significance of it to really sink in. And I think that was good. I think it, would, it was hard enough to do in the time available without that weight of a billion years on your shoulders. Did you feel stressed out doing that? Like, what was your what was your feeling during that six weeks? Did you just feel like you were working around the clock pretty much? I imagine, and I only know this because I'm imagining, it was as if you were on a serious Coke binge. <laughs> <laughs> it was adrenaline fueled. There was no Coke, but it was adrenaline fueled. I don't think I slept in six weeks. Because my yeah. my head was just exploding with ideas because I had to be doing so many things from the level of conceptually what would be good to show to can I get because we not only had to find all this content, we had to get secure permissions. And if you've ever done rights clearance, it's a tedious and this wasn't normal rights clearance either. You know, everybody had to be told what this weird project was. And some people hung up on us. Some people laughed in our faces. Some people got angry at us. You know, so there were so many moving parts that it was just a hyper alert, hyper focused. And for me, what I decided I had to do to do my job was I had to be the designated alien. Mm. In other words, I had to think, okay, I'm an alien listening to this. We read about the Beatles were meant to be included on the record, but they, they didn't get, you didn't get clearance on that. Do you remember that at all? Well, I was the person who spoke to the uh, vice president at BMI, which was a company that owned the Beatles at that time. I guess Tim Ferriss had requested directly through John Lennon and all of the Beatles had agreed, but they didn't own their music. So it had to go to BMI. The BMI vice president called me and he was very calm and he said, uh, but we have a policy in this very sort of posh accent. I won't try to mimic. <laughs> they have this policy of not allowing Beatles music to appear on any other labels. And I said, well, this is this is two uh, records that are going to be shot off into space. You know, I don't think yeah, there's exactly. really an issue of copyright infringement. Right. And he merely repeated the policy to me and was very, very sorry that he couldn't help me. But that was that. I mean, what were they worried about? It's going to space, dude. Like, that's crazy to me to be worried about that. It's, and it's, it's, it's such an honor, too. But I guess maybe at the time you were saying it didn't. Some people didn't get it. Some people, especially the, it was interesting. If you spoke to the person who actually made the picture. I don't think we spoke to any original composers of music. The only one was Chuck Berry, actually. And he was thrilled. And in fact, at the end, he came and he played on the steps of JPL at the final Voyager Neptune encounter. Oh, playing, that's so uh, cool. Johnny Be Good. Instead of singing Go Johnny Go, he was singing Go Voyager Go. So that was... Uh, okay, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, that's that cool. Was, yeah, rock on Chuck. Rock on Chuck. And when I would speak to individual photographers whose work uh, we were picking, they were all, you know, there was nobody whose work I wanted who wasn't thrilled to participate. But when you spoke to companies, you know... They didn't, their souls were stone in terms of this. The, the, the romance of it, the honor of it, the awesomeness of it, none of that made a dent. That's always the weirdest thing about artists versus business. It's like artists are like, yeah. yes, absolutely, I want to be involved. And then the business minds of it are like, well, I don't know. <laughs> what am I going to be yeah. paid? <laughs> yeah, will the aliens pay? Because their art is, uh, it, their entire industry is built around people uh, making money off of the art of other people. And so the artist could feel like, man, this is cool. We, we, could, we could send this into space and maybe extraterrestrial beings would hear my music for the first time to understand yeah. what human beings are. And then some 
someone in a suit goes, well, there's no money in that, you know, and that's crazy. Well, you know what our revenge is? Our revenge is there are no suits on the record. (laughs) (laughs) No bankers, no no boardrooms, no chief execs, no suits. suits. Was that intentional? It wasn't intent. Well, it was intentional in the sense that what Carl had said to me at the beginning, uh, one of the ground rules he laid down was that the image of the earth that we want to send is not from NASA and is not from the United States. It's from the world. So everything has to reflect that. The, the choices of everything has to reflect that, uh, that variety of, of people and cultures in the world. So uh, it didn't seem to me as I was making my list of things you had to show, you had to show a farmer, you had to show somebody, you know, working with their hands, you wanted to show, you know, the important stuff that we do. And it just never occurred to me that showing, uh, you know, showing bankers or suits was that important a part of a picture of Earth, though, uh, oddly enough. Uh, my boss, Frank Drake, the brilliant, uh, really idea man on this project, but socially a pretty conservative guy. After we were finished, he said to me, John, I realized we really left something out. I said, what? He said, well, guys in, in jackets and ties, you know, business, businessmen, business attire. And at first I thought he was joking, but he wasn't. He was, he was serious. But <laughs> You said, why would we do you that? You said, yeah, I don't think they're interesting. They're pretty boring. So, <laughs> Yeah. The closest we come to a suit is the tuxedos that the uh, string quartet members are wearing. Okay. Yeah. And that's not, that's more of a costume than anything I would say. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm saying we got no a suits on there. Cool. They're, artists. Suit they're artists and they're performing <laughs> yeah. costumes, right? Can you tell us a little bit about, cause you said you got a call from Carl Sagan. He said, we've got six weeks. I want you to come work on this thing. Who else got that call? How soon did you guys get together? Like just kind of a scope of the process. What did that look like? And did you, and did you know the people that were working on it with you beforehand? The thing about the Voyager record project was it, shouldn't be envisioned as a NASA project. Mm. It was an art project. It was an art project done by a bunch of friends. The two principal ones were Carl Sagan and Frank Drake. They needed a few people to put together this thing in a very brief period of time. So they asked uh, people they knew and people who were already fairly up to speed, at least in terms of being interested in space, uh, Carl had known uh, writer Tim Ferriss from a long profile in Rolling Stone that Tim had done about Carl, and they had become friends, and uh, Andrianne was Tim's fiance, and so she came onto the project kind of to help Tim, mm. and uh, Carl was married to Linda Sagan, who was an artist, and her role ended up being mostly to organize and put together the, the, the greetings, the uh, uh, people saying hello in, I think it's 64 different languages. Mm. Uh, again, not organized in the way a NASA project would where you, I don't know, go to the UN. We tried going to the UN, but they weren't organized enough to give us what we wanted. It was just sort of putting a uh, stapled notice on, on telephone poles in Ithaca saying, if you speak... Uh, if you're a native speaker of any language, we want you, you know, come by this office at Cornell. And people were told, give a, imagine you're saying hello to extraterrestrials. What would you say to them? And it was just left up to that native speaker to decide what was an appropriate greeting. And some of them were, if you translate them, uh, are, are pretty funny. Like, you know, have you eaten yet? We've talked about that a lot. We love that one. <laughs> I love that greeting. <laughs> what was the one that said, um, hello? Uh, it was, uh, they, they treated them as countrymen. Shelby, what was that one? Do you it was, remember um, it? Hello, Dutch speaking. Yes. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, the only Dutch speaking ones would understand it. So, in a way, it was a, it was a sort of a brilliant uh, dig at what's the point of it, which, right. in a way, uh, brings up the other uh, the other aspect of this, which was, who is this for? Now, ostensibly, it's for the extraterrestrials who find Voyager uh, some unspecified period in the future, but certainly hundreds of thousands or if not millions of years from now. The other audience is the humans on Earth who hear about it, you and everybody who's listening to your podcast and everybody in the world who's heard about the Golden Record Project. 
They're the only guaranteed audience, and it would have been naive to think that that audience is not important. Or put it this way, if you were only making a message for extraterrestrials that no humans would ever hear about mm. or be able to criticize, I don't know if you would have made, I don't know if I would advise making the same choices or let's say the same balance of choices. I probably wouldn't have put as much music on and I would have put a lot more animal sounds on. In retrospect, I think, especially now that I've been living in nature for many years, and I don't know if during this talk you've heard some of the birds and things in the background yeah, we have, here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I can listen to the song of a cardinal uh, or uh, the chattering of a minor bird, and, and each of those is as authentic as, and important as somebody saying hello in some earth language. And from the point of view of extraterrestrials, uh, maybe the message is a little too human-centered and we didn't give enough time to the other music and sound producing, you know, species on our planet. Though, to our credit, we did include whale song as part of the greetings, not as part of the nature. Well, speaking of greetings, if you were to re-record one in English right now, how would you, what would you want to say in it? From you, from, you, from just John. From John. Well, if it was part of the golden record, I just, I just say, uh, hope you like, <laughs> hope you like this. This is a gift for you, and we hope you like it. I love if it. If that could be translated, yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I think we need to take uh, a quick break, listeners, but we will be right. Bark, bark. <laughs> Welcome, bark. Welcome, bark. Shelby, did you bark, care? Bark, bark. Okay. It's <laughs> Because sometimes you fight well, me on last, Welcome Bark, but so the fans last, seem to love it. Last week, I allowed it a little uh -huh. bit more, and then... Yeah, well, because I gave in. I, I took the... I did a reverse psychology on you, and I played yeah, kind of the Yeah, but it was victim. embarrassing, because I had said Welcome Bark before you said back, and so then I looked like a fool. Yeah. Well, sometimes when you play the victim, you get the upper hand in that way. Playing the victim can be a very powerful way of winning. Well, you looked like a coward. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And playing a victim is often a very powerful way of looking like a coward. But we're back with John. Uh, and and we want to talk about, uh, John, we want to sprinkle in a little bit of um, basically this question that we have for you. It's kind of a modified question that we ask our pedestrian <laughs> guests. But for you, it would be if you were going to remake the, the Golden Records today, knowing all of the technological advances and things, what would you add to it? I did try to remake it. You know, there's been another spacecraft, the only one since Voyager that's leaving the solar system, and that's New Horizons, which flew by Pluto a few years back. Mm. I thought it was going to have some kind of golden record on it, but a golden record, you know, 2.0, a quantum supercomputing uh, nano yeah. golden record. But it didn't have anything, which I thought was a real, uh, a real missed opportunity. Yeah, why not? I asked them and they said, because it was too hard to do. They said they thought of it, but they said we had set the bar so high that there was nobody on their team that was willing to undertake the job of doing it because you didn't want to do it and not do it well. But everybody on the team was too busy. There was no Carl Sagan uh, counterpart that was willing to honcho it up and kind of make it happen. That's so crazy. To That's me. a tragedy. Just That's call the original. That's call a crime. John. That's call a crime. the Avengers. I like to think of the original people on it as the Avengers. <laughs> I called them and I said, "Okay, I'm going to come to the. I'm going to come to your rescue. You should have asked me, but what you can do is make a digital one. Yeah, and put it in the computer memory." Now, it won't last as long as a physical artifact, but if you do it right, it turns out that with the kind of memory that they have on New Horizons, you could make it, at least some of it, last for a million years or more. So that's still pretty good. And if you do it digitally, remember the Golden Record was purely analog. It had a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. It's one groove, and you sort of tell the viewer you start here and you end there. Whereas a digital thing can be more random access. There can be many pathways through the material. You can, uh, it's more like an encyclopedia. You don't read it from beginning to end. You go through it and you, one article sends you to another article and sends you to another article and uh, you learn about things kind of the way you want to. So you can have, let's say, all the uh, contents that come from, a certain geographical location, Europe or Africa, all organized in one way. Or you could have 
anytime there's a picture of something and a sound of it, they could be associated. You could link material. You could also do three-dimensional files that could uh, show things like molecules with a lot greater clarity and have a section on Earth's, Earth's favorite molecules, you know, chocolate and caffeine and THC and, uh, you know, all our, all our top molecules. Do you think there would be a way for, so if we sent up caffeine or THC, I guess there's no way to know, but it wouldn't probably work on them the same way it works on humans, correct? Well, do you think that TH, that the plants make THC for you? No, but... <laughs> I mean, look how, different, look how different we are from plants, yet something they make does something to us. And the one thing that we think we know about life is it's going to be very complicated chemistry and carbon complicated chemistry like ours is already pretty abundant. We know about it in what we've examined on other planets and everything. So I don't think it's out of the question that some molecule, yeah, but who knows what, there's that funny sci-fi skit of the aliens come demanding all our gravel, <laughs> you know? Give us your gravel or we're going to destroy the world because for them, nothing tasted better than gravel, so. And we can give it <laughs> who up. Who knows, but. Well, it would be kind of crazy if, I mean, I could imagine a world where like humans, okay, plants are living things that provide weed to us, provide THC. Well, we're living things. And what if we provided a drug to like, what if like, okay, if we provided a drug to the aliens, like our blood or our breath or something, that would be crazy. They would really, then we would really be in conflict. We would have to fight. And I don't want to fight them. Well, don't forget, we're, we're, we're pen pals. We're, we're pen pals and they're very, very, very far away uh, once they find this. And it's so far in the future that humans aren't going to be around anymore <laughs> anyway. So if you're talking about radio messages, there might be a little more risk. But I call this uh, uh, safe, uh, safe SETI. Safe SETI. <laughs> safe SETI because the time scales involved are so long that it's more like they're finding an antique relic of us. John, will you remind our listeners, Shelby and I are very smart and know what SETI means, but you will, remind, will you remind the listeners what SETI is? Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And it's those people that are looking for radio messages or thinking about sending radio messages and the people thinking about sending them, other people say, well, don't do it because don't give away where we are because who knows, it might be the Borg or horrible aliens out there. That's one thing that I've noticed. In 1977, when we made the Golden Record, our view of aliens was generally much more positive. Mm. Our view of the future and the universe was much more benign and positive. And now that we've come into the future and it, it sucks, we're much less optimistic about the cosmos and... Uh, well, Most of the aliens you see in pop culture are pretty negative. I feel like we're projecting quite a bit because I feel like what happened between yes. the 70s and now is that technology expanded our understanding of our own world and how bad <laughs> it is. And I feel like I feel like we're kind of putting it on the aliens like, damn, they, yeah, must, they must be, be really, really doing something. Then. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's a projection. It's a, it's, a, it's a projection. Something that we ask uh, a lot of our guests, uh, most of them, if not, if not all, I can't remember if we've skipped one or not, is... Um, this question of it's a segment called delete it and we ask people if if you were going to delete one thing from the record of humanity altogether like you could you could take away one thing in humanity um what would it be and we have like a little caveat which is not not yeah. the big stuff it, not war not or war, famine not sexism or homophobia not none of the big stuff that's like good people all agree shouldn't have existed. We're talking like um, tropical flavored Skittles or stubbing your toe really hard in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? Like things things that are not quite so serious. Is is there is there any piece of like human history that you think is just kind of embarrassing that we should get rid of? Disco <laughs> Disco was pretty cringeworthy. <laughs> no, disco. Not disco. John's anti-disco. That's crazy. Oh, I, Tell me about I, that. I love why, why disco? I love the That's pretty, well, I think it's very it's very personal because disco was kind of like the uh, the rebound to the counterculture. Yeah, it was like you know let's not let's forget about getting crazy and cosmic and just get as as uh, shallow as possible. Is that a way yeah, of putting sure. it? All right, it's gone. It's disco's, <laughs> disco's gone. Hey, look, on John Lomberg's record, disco never happened. And I can disco never can happened it. is I a cool name for it. something. I don't know what, I don't know for how, but it's a cool name. 
But way more than deleting things, you, I mean, John, you sent us such a long list of things you would add. Do you want to talk about some of them? Well, there's no one playlist and nobody, I think, ever pretended that this was, this was the best stuff that you could send from Earth. It was, uh, in fact, I'm surprised over the years how little criticism we've had about uh, our actual selections. Uh, I think most people felt we did a, 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 a fair job. But if you start thinking about, you mentioned that somebody you know, nominated Bjork because Bjork was very important to them. And I think that's a very noble and common motive that people would have for their suggestions. Who was really, really important to me that just deserves a spot? For me, it was Mozart. And of all the things on the record, I think the thing I'm proudest of, the, 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 the one contribution I made uh, that I'm most happy with is getting Mozart on the record because he wouldn't have been there otherwise. And no doubt Bjork's fans feel the same way. And uh, nobody can say that one is right and one is wrong. It's just who gets the chance to, to make that decision. It's like wanting to put a, something of your own kid in, which... Uh, Carl did in terms of having his son give the greeting and in a sense that Frank did in having his wife give the greeting in Arabic. Uh, this idea to, you know, want to have something of yourself and of your family or somebody who was uh, really important to you, I think uh, would be everybody's. Uh, and I think everybody should be that one choice of somebody. It doesn't matter how good they are. It can be, you know, it can be Johnny Western singing the Paladin theme song. And if you want to see something really funny, Google Johnny Western Paladin theme song. <laughs> a gun will travel, reach the card of a man. A night without so some of my suggestions were on, were on that level. Others were on the sort of level of what music of earth, what musical culture has become really important to me. So like, for example... When I made the Voyager record, I knew nothing about Hawaii. I'd never been in the Pacific. Having lived in the Pacific for th over 30 years, I think the Pacific is underrepresented on the record. This whole hemisphere of Earth is underrepresented. And certainly uh, Hawaii and Hawaiian music is one of the most beautiful things of that culture. So I would like to have seen something from Hawaii on there. And you love Teresa Bright. Oh, she's such a beautiful singer, yeah. What is your favorite song of, of hers to listen to? Ho'o Launa Aloha. personally, when I learned about the records from my friend Chandler, when Shelby and I thought, man, we should make a podcast about this, kind of, I was really surprised at the lack of, um, the lack of American nationalism. Yeah. Because in, you know, just like a decade prior, we went to the moon and planted an American flag, which I think is, um, you know, sort of, uh, well, we useless. faked that. Right. I mean, supposedly. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I, I was surprised um, and pleased that there wasn't a super um, America, rah, rah, USA vibe to the record. Do you attribute the lack of American nationalism to, or first of all, do you consider that to be true? But also, if you do, do you attribute that more to it being not a NASA project and more of an art project, as you said? Like, would you say that that comes through because it was a group of artists and not like a U.S. focused endeavor. Absolutely, absolutely. If okay. it had gone through NASA review and oversight, well, in fact, did NASA did tarnish it in a funny kind of way by uh, the greetings? Carl had asked the Secretary General of the UN to give a greeting, Kurt Waldheim, and then when NASA heard about that, they said, "Well, if the Secretary General is giving a greeting, then the American President has to give a greeting too." So they put in a picture of a letter from Jimmy Carter. But then because of separation of powers, if the executive branch gets to give a greeting, then the congressional grant branch has to give a greeting too. But they couldn't come up with a greeting. So what they came up with is a list of congressmen who were on the various subcommittees that oh appropriated funds to the project. So, so stuck in the beginning of the picture sequence completely sort of, from my point of view, ruining the design of it are these two incomprehensible slides of a letter from Jimmy Carter and a list of congressmen. 
And to me, that was very revealing. Yeah, this is what you get if you let NASA do it. Also, he, yeah, he, what, a, what a beautiful image of American Congress, too. Hey, uh, do do something cool for once. Nope, couldn't figure it out. So here's a list of our names. Yeah, yeah. of all things. How boring. <laughs> Yeah. Here, here's our names. Hope that helps in some way. We're so long dead by the time you've seen this. That yeah. Who cares? Not hope that helps, but you put this on or it doesn't go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <Ugh. laughs> but I think the fact that there was no nationalism was, uh, it was unspoke. It was an unspoken assumption we made because when Carl asked me, our politics were very similar. And I hadn't thought of it until I was interviewed recently by a uh, doctoral student in London who is doing a, his, his paper on the, the politics of the Golden Record. And I think it's fair to say that all the people that made it were kind of lefty in their politics, you know, liberal, hoping that people would get together rather than, than fight, kind of having this dream that now seems in our polarized country, a very one-sided dream of the UN is a good thing. I mean, the fact that we involved the UN and in fact showed a picture of the United Nations building twice, one in the day and one at nighttime. I did that just so the aliens could see that we had nighttime and we lit up our buildings. And the UN was a building I happened to find in both day and night, and it seemed a good symbol. Think how a lot of right-wing people think about the United Nations. Right. Just the direction we took in from the beginning, wanting it to be a message where people from the Indian subcontinent and, and Latin America and Andean Indians, you know, had the same uh, space as Midwestern farmers. That was a political decision. We didn't think of it as such because in a way the country wasn't nearly as divided politically then. Though the currents were all still here, but I think it's fair to say that the, the tone of the message represented uh, the politics of the people that made it. Well, and the reason I bring that up is because, like I said, Shelby and I have been uh, pleasantly surprised to see like Aboriginal music and things like mm -hmm. that on there and thought that was extremely progressive and cool. But the reason I even got into all of this again was that I felt like your list uh, that you included for new stuff was very diverse. Worldly. Yeah, worldly. Had a lot of different perspectives on it. I mean, it's, it goes from... Celtic music, flamenco. Michael Jackson, Tibetan chants. Inuit th uh, throat singing. Yeah. And then marching bands and K-pop. Uh, yeah, my tastes are very eclectic. And mm -hmm. I like Duke Ellington's, you know, if it sounds good, it is good. <laughs> I think of myself as a... As a a human on earth. I mean, my primary identification is as an uh, artist who's a human on earth and part of the Milky Way galaxy. And that was Carl's perspective. It's what he called the cosmic perspective. And he felt that anything less than that was divisive and held us back. And that uh, if everybody thought that way, and then he said to me, you know, very early on in our long collaboration our job is to is to bring everybody else up into this perspective and mm. uh that's one of the real values of the golden record i mean apart from getting into the weeds of the repertoire and what you picked it's that we wanted to send something out there we wanted it to be positive we wanted it to be not an ironic put down of ourselves and i think a lot of the things it's inevitable especially if you're talking about the earth audience you know, to sort of puncture the pomposity of trying to talk to the cosmos by let's show something really, really trivial and absurd. And, and I get it. And that's why we have comedy. And we need to be reminded that, you know, we can't, you know, let our heads get too swelled. But at the same time, we can't always be thinking that everything is fraud and every, you know, totally cynical. Uh, and there's a romantic aspect to space, then space is, is almost the only thing it's it's plausible and credible to be romantic about anymore. I mean, <laughs> the cosmos is so much bigger than we are, and it's it's room for so much incredible things, including us, if we manage to live that long and, and, and survive, that uh, the it's the aspirational aspect of the record that I think that accounts for its its, its popularity. It's one of the few things these days. Uh, I think it's why we were all so excited about the Mars helicopter or the Mars landing. It's because it's one of the things that makes you feel, yay, humans, you know, go team humanity. <laughs> and almost everything else you read, it's like, you know, humanity sucks. 
and uh, to me, there, there's an intangible value to that that's worth more than any of the Teflon or other spinoffs of the space program. The fact that it provides a perspective that's a useful antidote to most of the other perspectives you're stuck with. We've had guests talk about, um, you know, I, I believe maybe it was Jaquise Neal um, that's mostly coming to my mind, but we've had guests talk about, uh, yeah, if, if extraterrestrials came to Earth, how unifying that would be, and that maybe yeah. finally we would go, okay, team humanity, team like, Earth. Yeah, we're all one. We have one yeah. common thing, which is that we're from all of here. Right, and then I guess that 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 kind of presupposes a relationship uh, with the extraterrestrials that would be maybe like a red dawn situation, um, but but I think <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the the nice thing about thinking about space and thinking about uh, the records that 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 definitely drew me to it, um, and thinking the Voyager project is so cool is the reminder that we are all on this planet together and all of the stuff that happens here is part of us and important and, and cool. Well, a threat can unify us. Definitely a threat can unify us. But what sure. struck me about the golden record is that seems to unify us too. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm surprised there hasn't been more criticism like from within NASA or from within Congress of how did we send this, you know, this kind of sanctimonious liberal one world or thing out into space. Somehow everybody seems to have gotten behind it, and maybe it's a chink in the armor. Maybe it's a, a kind of way of finessing people's uh, people's divisions. Uh, space does have that unifying effect. Astronauts talk about the overview effect, which yeah. comes from seeing the whole planet without borders and boundaries, and you realize it's really just one connected thing, and we're one connected thing. And uh, I think the value of, of the golden record and why it's become such a, a treasure and an icon is it's a very unifying project. Something uh, we read about the original records was that or also noticed was that there was no mention of like war, um, at least that we've seen. Um, but you included on yours uh, Call of Duty, the game, to si uh, sh reveal a side of humans not shown. Do you think in like a, a reiteration, <laughs> we should let them know what we're capable of? Well, that came out of a discussion of what kind of software we might send. Because okay. if you were going to do a record today and do it digitally, you could send software. And some things like Tetris, I think, might be universally, you know, anybody might like Tetris. Uh, and sort of jokingly, I said, if you really wanted to show the side of humanity that we didn't show in Voyager, you know, Call of Duty would. Uh, and the fact that that's entertainment, that this is what people do for fun is yeah. uh, is, is somehow. If you sent it revealing. up, would you send it up with controllers if you could? Like, would you want them to be able to play it? I don't think I would send it up. I think that <laughs> the reason we didn't send war or uh this was a, an executive decision made by Carl and Frank from the very beginning, that this thing was going to outlast us. This was going to be around long after everything we know is dust, if the, the continents were ground to dust. So let's be remembered for the good stuff we did. It's, it, it's almost like if you're making a dating profile, you don't lead with the worst thing you've ever done. You know, yeah. you don't lead with, <laughs> right. this is what my worst enemy says about me. Uh, you try to lead with the good stuff. And in the sense that this was our calling card, this is who we were. Maybe it's as our epitaph. You know, obituaries tend to suppress the nasty things that people did. I mean, if you only went to funerals, you'd think that every human being who ever lived was the most wonderful person in the world. <laughs> so this is our epitaph. Uh, so let it be something kind. Well, John... We loved having you on. Thank you so much. We will probably beg you to do another episode with us. We have so much more to discuss. This, I mean, it's so this interesting is to us. We yeah, are it, so, it's so exciting to talk to you. Well, I like talking about it too, and I really like <laughs> talking to people. I mean, now it's your generations. And if the fact that this thing from a world that's so different, I mean, it was made in a world where, I mean, I don't even know if you were even born yet. It's not your world anymore, but the fact that it's something that you'll still accept as a token of your world, uh, to me, is astonishing and gratifying, and I'm very happy that you think enough of it to have a uh, podcast about it. We do. We, we really, we love really it. do. And, 
And we and we love having you as a guest. And, and Shelby, you do you want to tell people where they can find John? Everyone should head over to John's website, johnlomberg.com. You can see his artwork and some other stuff on there. There are some articles about some of the things I've spoken about. And then there are also a lot of uh, prints and posters and things that if people like my work, they can get. And I hope they do. And also, I, I know that I at least um, I know a lot of people who um, book speakers and, and work maybe on, on college campuses and things. And John on John's website, you can book him for speaking engagements and um, all kinds of things like that on there, too. So definitely everybody go check out johnlomberg.com. Even if you don't know if you want to buy a print or book John, go click on it because people get freaking um, you can get money and all kinds of cool stuff. From clicks. <laughs> so go click on the link. It was a pleasure speaking to both of you and uh, good luck with your show. was a HeadGum original.